encourage you to get your Bibles and be turning to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 will be where our study is this morning. Remind those listening on Zoom, I think we have you set where you can are unmuted, uh, where you cannot unmute yourself, but make sure you're muted if um, all possible. John chapter 14. John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Those five chapters are a case where Jesus has a discussion with and gives instructions to his disciples. The setting is the Last Supper in the upper room. John chapter 13 is where Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. John chapter 13 is where he gave the instructions for loving one another. Then when we come to chapter 13 or chapter 14, Jesus makes this statement in verse 1, John 14 and in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, he said. Let not your heart be troubled. These words are needed for a discouraged and a confused band of disciples. Obviously, they are discouraged because he's going away. He's made this point repeatedly to them, but notice in this context later in chapter 16 and in verse 6, but because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. What did he said to them? I'm going away from you. And that was not what they were expecting. They had a concept that he was going to stay with them and perhaps establish an earthly kingdom there. Their fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom had something to do with that concept. But nonetheless, Jesus was going away to their discouragement, the text says. King said this, he said, his commentary on the Gospel of John, they have left all to follow him and now he informs them he is going away and they cannot follow him now. Perhaps that's confusing to them. I like what Barclay said, in a very short time, life of the disciples was going to fall in. Their world was going to collapse into chaos around them. How true. They don't have a clue what's about to happen to them. He's going away and they're going to be preaching the very message he had been instilling in them concerning the kingdom of God. And as they go forth, they're going to first begin to convert thousands and then they're going to turn and how the world cave in on them in their persecution in chapters five, 4 and 5. Their lives are going to be threatened soon. They don't have a clue what's about to happen to them. Go back to verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. What does the word troubled mean? It means to cause inward turmoil, to stir up, to disturb, to unsettle, to throw into confusion. The announcement that Jesus has made to them has turned them into turmoil. They are thrown into confusion. They're not sure. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Same word, by the way. In John chapter 12 and in verse 27, when Jesus was troubled at the thought of his own death. Same word. Jesus was troubled at times. Chapter 12 so indicates that. Chapter 13, verse 21. He was troubled, same word, 
at his betrayal, that one would betray him. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 26, the disciples were troubled, the text says, at least the New King James uses that word, when they thought they had seen a ghost. They had seen their Lord, but they thought perhaps this could be a ghost that they're seeing. Same word, same concept. And what he says in this context is designed to comfort them so that they would not be troubled. And so in the context of saying, I'm going away from you, things are going to be turned uh, topsy-turvy, things are going to be thrown into utter chaos for you, he said, let not your heart be troubled. He seeks to allay every fear. He seeks to silence every murmur. And he seeks to calm every turmoil. Perhaps you are troubled in heart over a number of things it may be perhaps you're confused and uncertain about the future your own future your spiritual future maybe it's your physical future maybe it's the future of our country perhaps you're disheartened because a loved one has turned from the Lord and you don't know what the future holds in that regard Perhaps your heart is heavy because of some personal problem or some personal struggle that has nothing to do with what anybody else may be experiencing. Perhaps it's this pandemic, the world situation, that has now become a local problem and you wonder, what, what's, what's the future? I don't know. I'm confused. We've never been this way before, as we talked about last uh, two weeks ago. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. This is a study we considered a couple of years ago, and it was we elders were talking this past Friday evening about our uh, plans for the future. We thought perhaps a lesson along this line, and this perhaps even this very one might be helpful. To go back and revisit John chapter 14, so if you don't have your Bible open, I encourage you to open your Bible, and let's go to John 14, and let's go again to verse 1. Notice that verse 1 here, uh, it's on the screen before you, and then also verse 27, twice... In this context, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Look at verse 1. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, the peace I give to you, not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. In the, in the context of a discouraged band of disciples, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Now let's talk about the things that we find in this context that may be encouraging in the midst of a troubled heart. What could encourage us? Well, here's the first of those. First of all, there's the comfort of a complete faith. The comfort of a complete faith. Look at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What I learned from the text is that faith has the power to bring us safely through the troubled waters. The disciples are about to embark upon waters like they had never seen before. Perhaps we go through so much the same. And so what Jesus is saying is by putting your, your full trust in God, that'll help your heart not to be so troubled. Rely on Him for support and for comfort. We're talking in this context about faith in the absolute goodness of God, that God will sustain them, that is the disciples, and will sustain us through the deep places of our fear. And thus, 
Those hearts that were troubled would be sustained by that very thought. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe also in God. Believe, believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, let's talk about some of those whose hearts were troubled and yet were sustained by that very thought that we just mentioned. Let's take Job, for example. I doubt anything that any of us are going through at the present, no matter how bad your turmoil may be in this pandemic or anything else going on, that you have been like Job. So let's go back to the book of Job, be turning to chapter 19. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of the problems of Job. Job lost all of his children, lost all of his possessions first, then he lost all of his children. And having lost his possessions and his children, then he lost his health. And his wife turns and tells him to curse God and die. And then his friends come along to try to be of some help, and his friends are no help at all because what his friends do then is tell him, Job, this is all your fault. This is something you've done that's wrong. Job then himself gets so frustrated that he lashes out at God, and he's rebuked for that a little bit later, but he lashes out at God, and he says to God, you've set me up for target practice. Go to Job chapter 19 with me, if you will, and look at verse 25. There's one thing he held on to for dear life, and he wouldn't let go. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on earth. I trust and I believe in the goodness of God, and I know that will reign and that will prevail. I don't know what's going on here. I don't understand what the future holds. I don't know why my family's doing what the, uh, my wife is doing what she did. I don't know why my friends are turning on me like they are, and I don't understand why this happened to me, but I know this, that my God is God, and he'll do what's right. Let's notice another example in Revelation chapter 4. The first century disciples were urged to see God on his throne and in control. I keep reminding us of that and we need to be reminded time and again. When the first century disciples were under the, the uh, thumb of Domitian, I think, if perhaps you think the earlier date is correct, then so be it. It's Nero then. I uh, care little about what, who that was at this juncture, but nonetheless... As Domitian or Nero is putting their thumb on the Christians, and it looks like going to wipe Christianity completely out in the minds of some, they're reminded of the scene of God being on his throne and in control. There is the goodness of God that will prevail. But let's go further. This faith must be complete, according to verse 1. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me, he said. You trust in God, trust in me also. This small band of disciples were raised in Judaism and they had a deep faith in God, the God of Israel. But now they must put their faith and their trust in Jesus as God's Son, the Messiah. And what Jesus is saying is, with this faith you have no reason for a troubled heart. Linsky made this observation, he said, the departure of Jesus, rightly understood, is no cause for distress, but the very contrary, though it be a departure. Did you catch what Linsky said? Not right because Linsky said it, but I think he's trying to tell us this is what the Lord has just said to us in chapter 14 and in verse 1. What he's simply suggesting is that if understood, the disciples would see the departure as a completion of his mission, making way for others to go to heaven. And it would be opened all. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Chapter 14, verse 2 of John. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. This would be viewed as the completion of his mission. And so thus, he says, just trust. Just trust. 
Here's what I'm learning from this. Jesus is telling his disciples, a complete faith helps a troubled heart. That doesn't mean if we're troubled in this, we don't have faith. But relying upon God, that God is God and God will do what's right and God is still on his throne, will help us in the midst of troublesome times. So here's the second thing. Same context, John chapter 14. What does he say? Well, he talks about the hope of a prepared place. First, the comfort of a complete faith. Then secondly, there's the hope of a prepared place. Notice this beginning at verse 2. And verse 2, he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. Let's talk about the place itself. The New King James uses the word mansions. The footnote will say dwellings. That's interesting. We'll make a point about that in a moment. Other translations render it thus. The American, uh, English Standard Version says, instead of mansions, in my father's house are many rooms. The New Century Version says many rooms. The New American Standard Bible 95 says many dwelling places. The New Living Translations is a little freer, but nonetheless it gets to the point there is, there is more than enough room in my father's home. The point is twofold. First, there's the idea of permanence, the abode, the dwelling, and remaining. In my Father's house are many dwellings. What you're doing here on earth is temporary, but I'm going to prepare a dwelling place, a permanent place for you. And secondly, there's room for one and for all. And so here's the idea of a prepared place. But now let's talk about the preparation. And know the place, let's talk about the preparation in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2 he said... In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself. You see, these disciples, this small band of disciples, believed there was, there were mansions. Old Testament people believed in, in eternity. They believed there was a future. And so they did believe there were mansions, but now he says, believe in me that I am leaving to prepare mansions for you. Now that preparation would include a number of things. His death, that's part of the preparation. His resurrection, his ascension, and the work he's even doing now as our high priest. You see, if he doesn't die, the preparation cannot be made. If, he doesn't, uh, if he's not raised from the dead, the preparation cannot be made. If he doesn't ascend to the throne on high, he cannot make preparations for them. And so what he's about to do, though it was discouraging to them, was an essential part of this preparation. And so to help the troubled heart, here's a reminder that he's now preparing a place for us. And so we may feel at times like uh, Psalm 55, that I wish I had wings like a dove and I'd fly away and I'd be at rest, and I wish I could go somewhere else. Well, there is a place being prepared for us, according to verses 2 and 3. Now we talk about the place, the preparation, now let's talk about the promise verse 3. At verse 3, he gives this promise. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'm coming back to receive my own in this prepared place, he is saying. Now, this is quite interesting, the point he's making to the disciples. What he says is that where I am, you may be also. Notice that at verse 3. He said that... Uh, Notice the end of verse 3, that where I am, there you may be also. You think of what that meant to the disciples. 
You see, where I am, there you may be also. The disciples will not always be absent from the Lord. He said, I'm going away. And they have the picture, we'll always be absent from the Lord and we'll never be with Him again. And His assurance to them is, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you and then you'll be with me then. You'll not always be absent. Let's talk about the plan. The place, the preparation, the promise. Now the plan. Beginning at verse 4, we see something about the plan. Before we notice what Thomas said, notice what he said at verse 4. He said, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. What does that mean? Well, he's been talking to the disciples, and they should have concluded by now, and they should know by now that indeed he was the way. And he was the means to the Father. They should know that by now. They hadn't fully got the picture yet. Thomas wants to know more about the destination. So he says at verse 5, he said, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going, so how do we know the way? How could that be? He's focusing on the destination, but Jesus is focusing on the route or the way. And here's what he says at verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way. I am the true and the living way. And this is the part of believe in me also. I am the only way. So when he said it, verse 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, believe that I am the way. I am the only way for you to go to this prepared place. So here's what I'm learning from this. The hope of a life beyond helps a troubled heart. Are you troubled? Are you bothered? Are you all spun up about things in life? One of the things that will help us in trouble sometimes is to think about the hope of a life beyond. That helps. And here's the third thing. Same context now. Same context. The promise of a second coming. Now let's notice this twice. Verse 3, we've already noted. Let's read it again. Then we'll go to verse 28. We haven't come there yet. But notice it, verse 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, he says. Then notice verse 28, he says, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. Here is the promise that he is going to return. So the promise is that he will return again. What assurance that is. Now when he comes, what he's saying at verse 3 and verse 28 is that we can be with him. Look at verse 3. We can be where he's been and where he will be. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now we might take a moment to turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There was much misunderstanding about the second coming and what that meant and what advantage or disadvantage that would have involved. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you will, and in verse, uh, verse 14, or verses uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the text tells us it, uh, uh, to comfort one another with these words, I want you to notice the, the wording of that in verse, um, verse 14. Verse 17 says that the faithful will always be with the Lord. Verse 17. That is, when the Lord comes, and he, he comes with the shout of the voice of the archangel, will always be with the Lord, the text tells us. But I want you to notice at verse 18, it's comforting to know that when he's coming again, that we understand what's going to happen, 
Because he tells us at verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. We are to be comforted by the knowledge of the promise of a second coming. So what did Jesus just say? The promise of his coming again, the second coming, should help us heart. But again the fourth time. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus would say at verse 1. But there's something that's going to help. The comfort of a complete faith, the hope of a prepared place, the promise of a second coming, but then there is the assurance of answered prayer. Notice this in verse 12 to 14, and then we'll jump over to chapter 15 and in verse 7. We'll come to 15 and 7 a little bit later, but I want you to notice at 14 and verse 12, first of all. The apostles were left with work to do. Now that comes before his mentioning anything about praying and making a request. Look at verse 12. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. What's he talking about? Well, the apostles have been left work to do. He's going away, but he's not going away to leave them sitting here twiddling their thumbs. I'm going away and I'm leaving you a task and I'm leaving you work to do, he says. That's what I'm doing. Here's a very practical thing I learned from this, and that is a troubled heart is better if it stays busy. A troubled heart is better if it stays busy. There's plenty to do in the work of the Lord. Now, Jesus says this, greater works than I have done, you will do. Now, let's talk about what 12 is all about, verse 12. It may have reference, as some think, to the miracles of Jesus. I've worked miracles, but you're going to do greater miracles. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's what the text is talking about. I don't think so. I have thought that was the case, but I don't think so now. He said, why, why is that? Well, Jesus worked great miracles. He turned water to wine. That was a great miracle. He raised the dead, John 11. He healed the blind, John 9. The disciples could do that, but I can't imagine the works and the miracles of the disciples being greater than that of Jesus in any sense of a greater, more important, or a more marvelous miracle than what the disciples, I mean, what Jesus himself had worked. Maybe that is what he's talking about. Some have suggested maybe that's talking about they're going to do more miracles than he did. He did a lot of miracles, but because of the time span that they would be preaching and teaching, they could work more miracles, greater in that sense. I don't really think he's talking about miracles. I think he's talking about greater works in the matter of reaching people with the gospel. Not greater in importance, but it's the idea perhaps of greater in volume, greater in quantity, and greater in the masses. Jesus taught in Judea, but they went to Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And when they were in Jerusalem, there were thousands that responded to the gospel. That didn't happen with Jesus. Not greater in importance, greater in volume. Trying to drive home the point the disciples have work to do, and that's going to help them in their troubled heart. You've got work to do. You're going to reach thousands with the gospel. Now then, the end of verse 12, it was necessary that he go to the Father so this work could be accomplished. Notice the connection. Greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And if he doesn't go to the Father, they can't do these works. Well, they couldn't work the miracles, if that interpretation be correct. They can't work the miracles if he doesn't go to the Father because he's going to send the Holy Spirit. So I got that. That's possible. 
But if he doesn't go to the Father and ascend to the Father and offer his blood before the throne of God, Hebrews 9, then there is no salvation to offer and there is no remission of sins, etc. And so the necessity is that he go to the Father so they can accomplish their work of preaching and teaching the gospel. Now, to help in that work, verse 13 and 14, he assures them of answered prayer. And whatever you ask in my Father's name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now drop down to 15 and in verse 7, he says, if you, ask whatever you, if you ask whatever you desire, what you desire, it will be done for you. Three different ways of saying the same thing. And so the assurance is you ask and you'll receive. Whatever you ask, it'll be given. Now, if the interpretation of the miracles of verse 12 be correct, then this is probably talking about them seeking to work miracles and whatever they try to do, God would allow them to do that. And they would work those miracles and so they ask and it'll be given. Okay, that may be what he's talking about. I think he's talking about more the assurance that, that you have answered prayer to help you in the midst of this turmoil that you're going to go through of preaching the gospel, this work you're doing. And so you ask and it'll be given. Now this prayer is both open and limited at the same time. Open in what sense? If you ask anything in my name, it'll be granted. Notice again verse 13, that whatever you ask, verse 14, if you ask anything, verse 7, whatever you desire. Three different ways of wording the same thing. So it's open in that sense that you ask anything and it'll be given. It's limited in verse 13 and 14, you ask it in my name. Whatever you ask in my name, verse 13, verse 14, the same thing. What does it mean to do it in his name? It means to do it by his authority in harmony with his will. I can't ask for something that's contrary to his will. Someone who is refusing to obey the gospel asks God to save them. God's not going to answer that prayer in the affirmative. Or, or you ask for something contrary to what God has told us and taught us in his word, Someone in an unscriptural marriage, you say, well, God approve of this marriage that, that they may continue in that relationship. And I can't pray that because it's not in harmony with God's will. But here's what I'm learning from that context. Prayers being answered helps in a troubled heart. Knowing that when I feel helpless, I can go to God and I can pray to God. And God says it's both unlimited and limited at the same time. Limited within my name. But ask and you will receive. But here's something else. What's going to help with a troubled heart? The comfort of a complete faith, the hope of a prepared place, the promise of a second coming, the assurance of answered prayer, the meaning of disciples' love now. What does it mean to love? Well, look at verse 15, then verse 21, then verse 24, then verse 28. Verse 15 tells us something about love. We'll come back and read that in a moment. Verse 21 mentions love. So do these other verses that we have mentioned. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is, is here's what it means to love. It means to keep the commandments. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love the Lord, you'll keep the commandments of the Lord. Look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. Jesus connects love on the one hand and keeping the commandments on the other. Look again at verse 24. He comes from the other direction this time. 
He that does not love me and does not keep my words. So the one that doesn't love doesn't keep. The one that doesn't keep doesn't love. The one who does love does keep the commandments. Now here's what I'm learning from that. Perhaps it is because of love that we have troubled hearts. Maybe something is going on with someone you love. And that's why you're troubled. Maybe they've gone astray. Or maybe someone that was a friend or a brother or someone who's close to you has said something to you that gets you all upset and disturbed and because of the friction that you now have and it is because of that love that you are disturbed. Maybe you're seeing a loved one go through some turmoil and you're disturbed because of that love. Such was the case with the disciples. It is because they loved Jesus They didn't want him to go away. And they're upset about that. And they're bothered. So Jesus is pointing out the tears and the despondency are not really love's reaction to his leaving, but it's obedience. If you really love me, that's not going to be displayed so much. It's not saying they shouldn't cry. It's not saying they shouldn't have tears. What he's saying is that the real display of love is not showing your tears and despondency. Your real love is just be obedient. That's what love involves. But here's another thing about love. And he secondly says, and here's what love involves. It involves rejoicing. Rejoicing. Now this is interesting. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to my father. My father is greater than I. Jesus said, if you really love me, you'd rejoice because I said I'm going to my Father. You see, they're troubled because of their own feelings and their concern with themselves, and often is the case with us. How many times have you shed tears and you're upset, but you're really concerned about yourself and it's not the other person? Those of us who are old enough to watch your children leave home, and you shed tears when they leave home, don't you? You're not shedding tears for them. You're shedding tears for yourself. Because you want them to go out on their own. You want them to have their family of their own. You don't want them to stay back and not have a family. But they go off and they get married and they have their own family. And you shed tears for yourself because you're concerned about yourself. And that's why you're shedding tears. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you love me and you care about me, you would rejoice. What does he mean? You see, if they understood that he was returning to the Father, they would rejoice. What if you had a visitor from a foreign country who was visiting with you, and they got homesick, and they're crying, and they're upset because they want to go home, and finally they get to make a trip home, and you're begging them to stay, and you're crying because you don't want them to leave. Well, you're not understanding the value this has to them. You'd rejoice that they get to be with their family now. And Jesus is saying that if you understood that I'm returning to my Father, you would rejoice. They understood what he would accomplish in his returning, that he's completing his mission, they would rejoice. If I don't go to my Father, this mission is not complete. And the message you preach will be meaningless. Here's something that will help us. In the midst of troublesome times is understanding Love and how it works. That'll help with a troubled heart. One more time, let's go again to John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. What helps in the midst of a troubled heart? The comfort of a complete faith. The hope of a prepared place. 
The promise of a second coming, the assurance of answered prayer, the meaning of the disciples' love, but finally the gift of God's peace. And let's notice this at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What is this peace? What is this peace Jesus is talking about here? Well, Jesus calls it my peace at verse 27. It is a peace that he establishes. It is a peace that he gives. He tells us it's not like the world's peace, quite different from that. It is a condition when nothing disturbs our relationship to God. Again, not to be confused with subjective feeling of peace. Because one could be living in sin and out of relationship with God. They could be out of sorts with everyone around them and they're at peace with themselves because they feel good about what they've done and how they're living. That's a subjective kind of peace. This is a condition where we know we have divine approval. And that helps in the midst of troublesome times. It's a peace that is not dependent upon worldly circumstance. Every one of us would have to admit there's, there's, there's some troubling thoughts right now about what's going on in our society. From various standpoints. We're limited in our, how we're assembling. We're limited in seeing our brethren. We're limited in seeing family. And we're disturbed. But this peace is not dependent on worldly circumstance. So the question is, how does that help? It's interesting to me that verse 27, go back to verse 27, peace I leave with you and peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Then the very next statement is exactly what he said at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. There has something to do with that. It has a great deal to do with that. Here's how it works. It gives courage and it gives boldness to face the challenges at hand. You see, since it differs in essence and quality with worldly peace, it soothes a troubled heart. You see, this is a peace that you don't get by listening to the White House con uh, news conference. I watch that. I'm fascinated with that. And I listen to the governor, and I check what's going on in the county. I am a news freak. I, I could watch news conferences all day long and be excited about that. But you don't get any peace from that. We agree or disagree. My point is, this is a peace that Jesus is talking about that differs in essence and quality from worldly peace. This soothes a troubled heart. This doesn't stir us up. You see, the peace of God calms the heart that's anxious. One last passage here, and we're going to wind this lesson down. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. You're familiar with Philippians 4. But I want you to see the connection between peace and an anxious heart. A heart filled with anxiety. And notice at verse 6, he said, Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests become known to God. Don't be anxious. Don't be filled with anxiety. Don't be all spun up in your life about, knotted up about things in life. But notice verse 7, And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. What I'm learning from that, the peace of God calms the heart that's tending toward anxiety. Here's what I just learned from that. The peace of God gives help in a troubled heart. So what have we learned from John chapter 14? John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. What will help us in the midst of that turmoil? When the disciples, this small band of disciples, were so discouraged. Quite anxious about what's going on. The comfort of a complete faith. The hope of a prepared place. The promise of a second coming. The assurance of answered prayer. The meaning of disciples' love. And the gift of God's peace. I hope all of you present this morning and those that are joining us by Zoom will join us for our Zoom study this afternoon at 5.30. We're going to talk about Paul in isolation. His prison epistles. What, did, what was on his mind while he was in isolation? And maybe there's some things in that will help us when we feel like we're in isolation or when we are somewhat limited. We'll talk about Paul in isolation tonight. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ? the Son of the living God, of your sins, acknowledge your faith and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?